Hello and welcome to the Mountain Gazette Library. I'm John Boostar, and this week we proudly present the writings of Ingrid Backstrom, internationally ranked and award-winning professional skier, mother, and writer. Enjoy, enjoy the great American West, what's left of it. October, on top of Half Dome, the whole Sierra was blanketed with a foot of snow. I had just entered a pleasantly empty subway car. And the next thing you know, you're in this calm, calm water. When you know who you are, when you get in touch with yourself, you don't have choices. So I think as a journalist right now, you have a lot of opportunity to really put across quality work that will stand out in a sea of a lot of garbage. If I've learned anything about life balance, it would be that the no balance balance is where it's at. (laughs) Episode 10, A Woman's Place is at the Top, written by Ingrid Backstrom for Mountain Gazette 195. Mountain Gazette Library is proudly presented by Steo. Designed, developed, and tested at the base of the Tetons in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, Steo was founded to inspire connection with the outdoors through premium technical apparel for the epic and everyday. Learn more at Steo.com. S-T-I-O.com. Steo. Let the outside in. This episode is also brought to you in association with Gordini. Gordini has been redefining the cold weather experience through outdoor gear and glove innovation for more than 66 years. Based in Vermont, family run and independently owned, Gordini has focused on the same mission since its founding in 1956 to keep you outside longer. From introducing the first ever down and leather ski mitts to launching the industry's first dual layer ski sock, Gordini believes that the future is in our hands and now, our feet. Innovation is always done in the spirit of progress. See what drives our product and our passion at Gordini.com. G-O-R-D-I-N-I.com. The first time Arlene Bloom climbed a mountain, she tore the skin off her butt completely. After reaching the respective high points, the group started their descent. Her partners said they would need to slide down in order to get off the mountain before dark and they gave her a quick demonstration of how to glissade. Then the guys, more experienced climbers whom she barely knew, sped off out of sight down the bumpy, icy slope of the Mount Adams on their buns, protected by the leather of their seats of their special mountaineering pants. Bloom gamely began to slide also, on the seat of her wool dress slacks, not realizing that her companions had a protective advantage and she rested below snow line in the dark, exhausted and exhilarated from the climb and the glissading. She discovered with horror that she had shredded her pants and the ice-numb flesh of her backside. Mortified and soaked in blood, she put an extra pair of shorts over her pants and said nothing to her partners. After getting lost in the dark forest with no batteries for their flashlights, they finally found the car at 3 a.m., and drove back to their respective dorms at Reed College. The following day, a doctor picked small rocks out of Bloom's backside and instructed her to sit on a medical donut for several weeks. Bloom sheepishly toted the embarrassing seat with her to classes while she healed. She tried to focus on school, hoped the real climbers on campus weren't laughing at her, but all she could think about was getting back up high on a mountain. She wrote home to her family that her day on Mount Adams had been the best of her life. That was 1964. Once her buns healed, Bloom climbed every chance she could. Rocks, mountains, whatever was available throughout college. She graduated in 1966 
and chose to get her doctorate in chemistry at Harvard, but was told that the prestigious Harvard Mountaineering Club wouldn't allow women. So she chose MIT, only to be told by a professor upon arriving that no women at MIT would be allowed to get a doctorate in physical chemistry. So after putting in a year studying surface chemistry in Boston, Bloom transferred to Berkeley, closer to good climbing in the Sierra and with a supportive and encouraging advisor, a climber no less, she was able to advance her personal climbing goals while also advancing science. Over the next 15 years, Bloom created a series of scientific and mountaineering breakthroughs despite sexism and anti-Semitism on the rock and in the outdoor community as well as devastating losses of friends and climbing partners in the mountains. During her first year at Berkeley, inspired by the necklace of a fellow climber on a school climbing outing, she formed beads into an H-like structure to show her hypothesis of what a three-dimensional representation of a tRNA molecule might look like. Her model seemed incredibly promising towards helping understand how proteins in a cell are made, but her advisor encouraged her to get back to the drawing board and do the painstaking research experiment that would provide concrete proof. Meanwhile, she searched for a climbing expedition to join. She had saved up some money and was ready for a challenge. Inquiring about a trekking trip to Nepal, Bloom was told she couldn't join because there wouldn't be another woman on the trip with whom she could share a tent. Applying for a trip to Afghanistan to climb a 21,000 foot peak for which she was well qualified, she was later informed that she couldn't be accepted because having a woman on the trip might cause issues for accessory situations high up on the ice. Her friend, a male climber who never been higher than 14,000 feet and was thus much less qualified than she, had been invited along. When asked about an expedition in Denali, the guiding office said women could come to base camp, but no higher, as they were neither strong enough to carry loads nor emotionally stable enough to handle the high altitude. When she expressed further interest in Denali at an American Alpine club meeting, a man in the room said, no way dames could make it up that bitch. That was 1967. Between her research and studies at Berkeley, Bloom climbed in Peru managing to ascend about 20,000 feet despite a debilitating undiagnosed case of hepatitis. She also summited Mount Waddington in British Columbia with a guided group, and then, by 1970, had assembled a team of six women to attempt Denali. If successful, they would be the first women ever to summit the mountain. Spoiler alert, the dames made it up that bitch. Bolstered by her success leading the trip to Denali, she organized an endless winter trip where she and a rotating cast of partners made their way around the globe for months, climbing and trucking in Afghanistan, the Rwenzori Mountains in Uganda, Iran, and Kashmir, among many other places, completing three first ascents and reaching more than 23,000 feet at their highest point. On a dramatic and chaotic trip to peak Lenin organized by the Russian government in 1974, Bloom had a light bulb moment contemplating drops of ice melting off of the glacier. She realized that by rapidly freezing the protein ribonucleus, she could perhaps get a nuclear magnetic resonance image of the folded protein. The prevailing wisdom at the time said capturing a protein mid-fold was impossible. In fact, one of her professors, Robert Buzz Baldwin, 
flat out told her it wouldn't work and she still didn't listen. As Baldwin said in 2017, she was a very persistent person. She still is. Sure enough, after many tries in the lab, her idea finally worked. Baldwin later said that her pioneering effort had been groundbreaking and resulted in a whole new field. Studying proteins and their folding remains critically important to understanding and seeking cures for many common conditions, including Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and some forms of diabetes, among other illnesses. Her experiment a success. Bloom hopped on a plane to India to climb Trissel Massif. During their summit bid, her dear friend and former partner Bruce Carson, a young, talented, environmentally-minded climber, fell through a cornice to his death. Distraught, Blum vowed to dedicate her career to Carson, who had always striven to leave the world, every base camp, and every place he went better than when he arrived. She shifted her focus towards studying the chemistry of the products that people put into their bodies and the environment. She began assessing early forms of birth control for cancer risks then studied the chemical tris hydroxymethyl methane, also known as tris, flame retardant that at the time was put in children's pajamas, and that is still in wide use in furniture and children's car seats, among other products. She, along with Bruce Ames, determined not only that tris is cancerous, but also that it was being absorbed into the bodies of children who wore the pajamas, and Bloom lobbied effectively to get it banned. In 1976, Bloom reached 24,500 feet on Everest, at the time an altitude record for an American woman, on a trip that she helped organize and produce. Weakened from a bad case of Giardia and victim to macho decision-making, the men on the team later admitted to feeling threatened by her competence as well as competitive toward her for the coveted summit spots. She felt discouraged by the trip and was still mourning the loss of Carson. While two members summited the second ever American to do so, which was considered a massive success, the expedition left Bloom feeling empty, ready for more powerful adventure and perhaps a bit more altitude. In 1978, after much planning, training, work, and fundraising, including selling 15,000 t-shirts that read Annapurna, a woman's place is on top. Bloom led first all-women trip to an 8,000-meter peak, purposely hiring a smaller fraction of male hoarders than standard all-men expeditions of the era typically enlisted to help carry gear on the mountain. The trip was both a triumph and a tragedy. Two members successfully summited, while two others perished after attempting the summit despite Bloom and the other women pleading with them to turn around. Bloom's book on the trip, Annapurna, A Woman's Place, was a bestseller. That book was my first introduction to Bloom. As teen obsessed with adventure and mountaineering books, Bloom's Alongside Miles from Nowhere by Barbara Savage stood out glaringly to me amid the hordes of tales by men, and I devoured them. Her honest storytelling read simultaneously matter-of-fact yet warm and personal. And I felt validated as a young woman who had objectives and goals in which the established norms might sometimes interfere. In a gesture of teenage female solidarity, I petitioned my high school to allow women into the all-male Knights of Cutlass Club members of which were entitled to prestigious high school honors, like performing skits for school assemblies and getting special patches for their letterman jackets. Since Bloom made inroads into male-dominated spaces, then I would also. 
Throughout my life and ski career, I have been fortunate to have Bloom's and many other women's examples in my mind at all times. We take it for granted that women belong in the mountains. When I was invited on a trip to Denali in 2010, no one was worried about my excretory situations high on a glacier, except me. Because have you ever tried to change a tampon on the side of a mountain in a snowstorm when it's blowing 60 miles an hour? I've celebrated the joys and bemoaned the challenges of ski road trips to ski areas. Mind you, while Bloom thought nothing of trekking across the Alps with her partner and their baby in a backpack for several months in the 1980s. After having children myself, I began to learn about constant health risks lurking around us in the form of toxic chemicals. They're in the personal hygiene products we use, the pans we cook in, the clothing we wear, and countless other everyday items as varied as paint remover and countertops. While reading an article one day about toxic chemicals in kids' toys, my heroine's name appeared. Wait, I thought, could it possibly be the same Arlene Bloom, mountain climbing pioneer? How could one woman be a massive success and a complete trailblazer in two very important and seemingly different aspects of my life? When her daughter was born, Bloom left academia, leading trips around the world and teaching courses in leadership. Her memoir, Breaking Trail, was released in 2005 to critical acclaim. In 2006, after her daughter went to college, Bloom decided she wanted to return to industrial chemistry after 26 years. She discovered that while tries had been banned, other chemicals had been substituted in its place. A game of whack-a-mole, where once one substance was proven to be dangerous, a year-long process with little to no regulation or oversight all hanging on individual scientists and their funding to do their work, another substance in the same class of chemicals would simply be subbed in, posing a new suite of unknown health risks. The best thing people can do is spend time to get educated about these classes of chemicals. Bloom told me when I had the honor of talking to her on her landline. This recent work led her to the Green Science Policy Institute to mobilize scientists, industry, governments, nonprofits, and consumers to reduce the risk of toxic chemicals. Since its founding, Bloom's been working tirelessly on behalf of the Institute's and her six classes approach to chemicals, which holds that if we eliminate an entire class of toxic chemicals, rather than each of the hundreds of individual chemicals within it, industries can no longer perpetuate the creation of new unsafe products. She writes two regular newsletters, available at arlenebloom.com and sixclasses.org, dedicated to educating people about the ongoing efforts of chemists like her to research and lobby on behalf of our planet and our health. When not working, whenever that could be, Bloom hikes every day in the Berkeley Hills. But only for two or three hours, she says, to save my knees. Cross-country skiing, however, she can go all day. The Mountain Gazette Library is produced and hosted by me, John Boostar. For more, head over to mountaingazette.com slash subscribe today and pick up a subscription to the magazine. This podcast is executive produced by Mike Rogie, marketing by Austin Holt, produced by Connor Sedmak, social media by Amy Doran, and public relations by Ryan Rowe. No part of this podcast may be reproduced without written permission from Mountain Gazette and its parent company, Verb Cabin, LLC. 